Welcome to the Harbor Church Podcast. Harbor's here to connect people with Jesus and with each other. If you're looking to get connected, you can find more info at harborchurch.com. Now, here's this week's message from Pastor Josh. We'll make a little noise, Harbor Church, if you're in the house, you're ready to get to it. Man, it's good to see you guys. Woo! I love it. I love, I mean, I, I wish we could do a baptism video every time right before I get up to preach. That's exciting. I love seeing that. So I'm glad that you're here. Thank you for being here. Thanks for uh, just coming out and, and checking us out. If this is your first time at Harbor Church or if you're tuning in online, those of you watching right now on Facebook or on YouTube or listening to this on the podcast, however you find yourself uh, engaging with, uh, with us, uh, man, I'm so glad that you're here. My name is Josh. I'm the lead pastor at Harbor Church. And uh, as Evan just said, we are in the third week of a series that we're calling, uh, that's on the book of Nehemiah called The Good Work. And, and uh, man, I'm excited to just kind of continue to jump into that. And if you've missed the first couple weeks, that's okay. Uh, we talked about uh, this guy named Nehemiah, who's also the author of this book. And the short story is he's a slave in the Persian Empire. And while he's there, he was born into that. He was born into captivity. Um, that's all he's ever known. But he is a Jewish person. And when the Persians took over, they allowed the Jews to, to leave the Persian Empire and to return back to the, the land of Judah, which is the promised land. That's where the Jews' home was, uh, was located. And the Persians allowed some Jews to return back to their land um, because it, it, they had been they had, it had been empty for about 100 years and uh, had been kind of destroyed. Like the, when the Babylonian Empire came through, they, they burned everything down. And Nehemiah hears at the beginning of the, of the book of Nehemiah, he, he's serving as a cupbearer to the Persian king. And he hears about some of the Jews that have returned back home, but how bad it is for them and how unsafe it is. And he hears that the city of God, the city Jerusalem, which is the capital city, it's, it's the one that God said he would use uh, to, to bring the Holy One, the, the anointed one, the Messiah. And if you don't know the, the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem is where Jesus ends up dying on the cross. Now, Nehemiah knows that the promised Messiah was, was, gonna, was going to enter into Jerusalem. And then he hears that the Jews that went home to build up Jerusalem, they can't do it because the walls of the city are torn down. They got a temple built, but that's all they could do. And all of their enemies kept attacking them. And, and when you have a city that has no wall, you have no protection. And so he hears that his Jewish brothers and sisters are are in constant fear for their lives. They're constantly stressed. They know no peace. They have no comfort. They have, they have the absence of any kind of joy just because of the situation they're living in. And that breaks his heart. And so the first week of this series, we talked about what it looks like to have a burden, to have a broken heart for something that isn't the way it should be. And I believe that God's got that for each and every one of us. He's got a burden. He's given a mission, a purpose to each and every one of us. There is a purpose on your life and it doesn't revolve around making yourself happy. That may be your purpose right now, but that's not what God made you for. God designed you to fulfill this burden that he has for you to, to, to take something that is wrong and make it right. Now, for each of us, it may be a little bit different. You might have a burden for something that I don't have a burden for, but if we are brothers and sisters in Christ, if we're serving God, then I'm, I'm on your side and I'm, I'm cheering for you and hopefully you're cheering for me. And then we say, hey, our burden is for the things that are broken. And Nehemiah takes that burden. And last week, what we looked at was he takes that burden to the king, just like you and I are supposed to. Nehemiah takes his to King Artaxerxes. You and I are supposed to take our burdens to the king of kings. And we say, hey, I, I, I don't know what to do with this, but I know that you can help. 
And God says that when we come to his throne and we ask him for help, we will get the same thing Nehemiah got. Nehemiah got a bunch of letters from King Artaxerxes that promised him safety and supplies and status. And we have the exact same letters from our king. God saying, if I put a burden on your life, if there's something broken in your world and you, you know that things could be better, if there's something broken in your family and you go, this is not God's best for my family. This is not God's best for my relationship, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my husband, my wife, my parents, my kids. The way things are at my workplace, there's no way this is what God intended. There is sin, there's brokenness here. And when you get that brokenness, when you get that burden, God also says that he's supplying a way for that to get fixed. Now, whether you go to the king or not, that's between you and God. But if you do, then you get to see what happens next, which is now that we've kind of got the preliminary out of the way for this series, we get to jump into what it looks like to build a wall, to begin to work on your burden. So we left off with Nehemiah halfway through chapter two. He's petitioned the king and the king graciously says, I want to partner with you in building up that wall. I'm going to release you, Nehemiah. I'm going to let you out of my service to go do that. And I'm going to protect you while you do it. And I'm going to make sure that you have all the timber that you need. Just go to my forest and I'll write a letter that says, to tell that guy, uh, the keeper of my forest, to give you all the timber you need. So he's got all of that. And then we see in Nehemiah chapter 11, it says that he, he, he writes, so I arrived in Jerusalem. I arrived in Jerusalem. There's something that I just, before we get into the actual meat of the, the, the message, the whole point, there's something that I want to notice, note here. Nehemiah's heart was broken. And a lot of Christians today don't even have a broken heart for the things that breaks God's heart. But he had that. And what did he do with it? He began to pray and to read and to petition the king. And a lot of Christians won't do that. You're broken, but you don't ever take it to God. You won't go to the king. You won't, you won't saturate it in prayer. But if you do, I think that's where most Christians stop. I have a lot of conversations with people that are like, I'm so broken and I've been praying and it just breaks my heart and I've been crying about this and this bothers me and, and it's, we're all worked up and we cried and we prayed and we've read the Bible and we've done all of that and we talked to everybody, but we haven't done anything. For all of his crying and for all of his heartache and for all of his petitioning of the king and for all of his prayer, Nehemiah has to get up and travel 800 miles from the palace of Susa to get to work. I'm going to say that again, Harbor Church, because we can be all kinds of brokenhearted for our community. We can be all torn up about the life of our kids. We can be all kinds of concerned about our, our coworkers or our employees or our boss or our classmates and our teachers and our teammates and our, our brothers and sisters, whoever it may be. We can have all kinds of burden, but if you're not willing to work to actually go do something, you don't understand the whole premise of this chapter. You don't understand what it means. There's, you're going to just get used to having a lot of burden then. Because it ain't ever going to get fixed if you just sit on your butt and all you do is whine about it. You have to actually go do something. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 11 says, Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. It says, make it your mission to, to, to go about God's business enthusiastically. It means 
The same way you get excited about going to a Patriots game or about your favorite movie being released or a book that you've been looking forward to or hanging out with your friends or going on a date with that person. The same way you get excited about all the things that bring you joy is the way you should get excited about what it is that God wants. And that's how you get to work. But we don't do that. So we sit back and go and just wish the walls were built up. Things suck there. It's so bad for them. And that's all, that's all Christians have done especially Christians in America. We are the epicenter for Christianity, and yet we have one of the lowest rates of a growing church in the world. Because all we do is talk. We don't actually do anything. Nehemiah gets to work. He shows up. If you read the, the end of uh, the, the, the section that we were at uh, last week, he shows up, he's, he's got an entourage. The king, when he sent him with some status, he sent him with some chariots and some horsemen, some officials. He rolls into town with, with a, basically a mini Persian army. You better, re- you better realize that everybody was paying attention to him. Homeslice rolls into Jerusalem with a wagon train just backed up, filled with, with all kinds of timber. And everybody's like, who's this guy? What is he doing? Look at all that. Look at all that Persian wood he's got there. Boy must be building himself a nice house. And you know other people are like, hmm, must be nice to know the king. Look at him. Look at him. I wish I had that. You know, like they're probably doing that. So that's why if you bring back up that verse, verse 11, it says, I entered into Jerusalem. I'll show you here and say, I arrived in Jerusalem. And then three days later, we get to verse two, what he does in verse two. Now, verse two is where it picks up and we begin to learn what we're supposed to do with our burden. But I, I'm showing you verse one for a reason. Now, three days later, this is, this is where we begin to see the tactician Nehemiah at work. Here's what I want you guys to know. If you've never done a study on leadership, Nehemiah is one of the best books for leadership. This weekend, you're going to get a master's class on leadership. Not from me, but from Nehemiah. Um, John Maxwell, uh, Simon Sinek, um, friggin Steve Jobs. These guys took took uh, things from that, that Nehemiah teaches us right here for free, and they made a ton of money telling people this is how you be a good leader. The, Nehemiah will give you a crash course, a, a master class on leadership if you'll pay attention. Now, by the way, God has called all of us to be leaders. Every, you're like, well, I'm not a boss. No, I'm not saying. If you're a parent, you're automatically a leader. If God has given you a friend, then you're supposed to lead them. What's it mean to lead? It means you go in the direction that is best for that group, for those people. So my friends should see me out leading what it looks like to be somebody that's, that's chasing after God. I'm supposed to lead friendships, my, my spouse, my children. If I am at work, my coworkers, my employees, you could even lead your boss, even though you're not the authority. You can be a leader in how you conduct yourself. So Nehemiah teaches us how to do that. That first verse, he says, I waited three days. He's just letting all the, all the hoopla die down. Everybody's, oh, who's this? who's this? He just sits there and doesn't do anything. He's being chill. Then, and that's, this is part of his strategy, then he gets to work. And this is how we get to work on our burden. Here we go. Verse 12. I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anyone about the plans that God had put in my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except for the donkey that I was riding. And after dark, I went out through the valley gate, 
past the jackal's well and over the dung gate. Now, this is what this is basically saying. He comes out, and where he comes out of the city, he turns left, and he's basically came on the west side, and he goes counterclockwise all the way around the whole city of Jerusalem. So he comes out, he says, I came out, I went past the jackal's well and over the dung gate to inspect the broken wall. Somebody say inspect. All right, so he's inspecting the broken walls and, he, and all of the burned gates. Then verse 14, it says, Then I went to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. So even though it was still dark, I went up the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting, somebody say inspecting, inspecting, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again through the valley gate. So he goes all the way around the city. Then he lets us know, verse 16, the city officials did not know I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anyone about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. Seems like a lot of verses for nothing, right? Except for Nehemiah is teaching us what it looks like to be a good leader. If you want to know what it looks like to be a good leader, you first have to lead yourself. You have to lead yourself. If you want to lead others, you have to first lead yourself. You have to be willing to do this kind of work before you can get up and get everybody else to work, especially when it comes to a burden that God might have put on your heart. So how does he do that? Well, before I give you the points that I see in that, in that passage real quick, I want you to notice something. Twice at the beginning of that passage we read and the end of that passage, he says, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell anybody what I was doing. Did anybody else find that weird? that he mentions multiple times, I didn't tell anybody. See, if it's me, I'm walking in going, hey, I'm here, going to fix the wall. Everybody recognize Nehemiah's in town. That's what I'm here for. Recognize me. Let's go. Everybody come get on board. He doesn't because he's smarter than I am. He realizes, and if you read uh, some of the verses I skipped over, he's already got enemies. They hear that somebody has been given permission to come help the Jews, and they're already upset with him. They don't even know what he's doing, and they're mad at him. See, long before he starts talking about what he's going to do, he's got to lead himself. He's got to do some of this work. And if he just started running off his mouth, guess what I'm here to do? Guess what I'm here to do? He would have given his enemies time to uh, gather an opposition before he had gathered his, his forces. He would have helped his enemies be ready to attack him before he was ready to defend. And what I realize when, when I see somebody that has a job to do and he doesn't immediately go try to get everybody to be cool with him is he demonstrates something that we lack. In his willingness to be quiet, what he's doing is he's, he's basically saying, I don't need your approval. Oh, hear me out. He, he is demonstrating what we don't do today. He is not looking for a bunch of likes and follows in order to feel good about the mission that he's got. See, what you and I would do is the first thing we would show up, we'd be taking a selfie out there on top of the broken wall, like, here to fix it, Xerxes' mission. Yeah, you got your boy, got all the wood. Hashtag Dungate, here we go. Right? I mean, I would. I don't know about you guys. We would be trying to get a lot of people thumbs upping our mission in order to feel good about it. If you don't think that Satan knows that, and he makes sure that when you get excited about doing something for God, you don't get met with a whole lot of, yeah, attaboys. 
And when you don't get it, what you and I do is like, well, I probably shouldn't do it. Nobody's excited for me to do it. Yeah, nobody's excited for you to do it because it's your burden from God. He didn't ask you to look for their approval. He's already given you his. Stop going to man to get what God has already put on you. Let me say it another way. Okay, two people going to clap. I have to turn the volume up a little bit here. This, I love it. This is how Paul said it. Paul, the missionary who had to go from town to town to town to town to, to, to plant churches, he says it this way. Obviously, I'm not trying to win the approval of people, but uh, the approval of God. Because if pleasing people was my goal, (laughs) then I wouldn't be Christ's servant. I'm so sold out to doing what God wants that I don't need to make sure that what I'm doing is what everybody else wants. And that's incredibly important because whatever it is, the burden that you have on your heart, other people may not be applauding you for it. Your burden for your family Somebody somewhere has written a blog that tells you that it, what your family's doing is okay. And you're like, well, they don't, they don't think it's a problem. Yeah, it's not their family. And it's not a burden that God's given them. Quit looking to them. Like, just, just don't do that. Like, Nehemiah wasn't consumed with that. He just kept it quiet. He kept, he kept his cards close to his vest. Some of you, you've gotten so used that you have to put literally every thought you have out into the, into the world. <laughs> Got to type it up and put a little picture with it, and that everybody needs to know everything you've ever thought, that's not healthy. I'll just be honest with you. It's not. It's actually opening up a room for Satan to sneak in and, and for more attacks to happen because you've got so much stuff out there. That'll preach, but I don't have time to keep going. All right, here we go. So what do we see him do? Well, we see him going, going around and looking at all of the things. Now, he had heard about it, but he had never been in Jerusalem. He knew that all the walls were broken down and he knew that all the gates had been burned on, uh, been lit on fire. And yet he still wanted to go get his eyeballs on it. Why? Because if you're going to learn to lead yourself, you better learn to take a hard look. Take a hard look. That means you look at the things that might reveal that they're not all there. I remember when Kaylee and I were building our house, we had bought a house. The only thing we could afford was one that had been, uh, had been foreclosed on for years. It said empty. So we pretty much ripped it back down to the foundation and built it back over what we thought would be a couple of months. It took a couple of years. And I remember as uh, towards the end of the project, uh, there was at the end of the day, it's always the end of the day, my father-in-law and I were working. He's the real contractor. I was just the dumb assistant, but he had me cutting some blocking for something we were doing. And it was the last piece that I was cutting on the table saw. It's always the last piece. And I've run it through and it catches right at the end because I wasn't using a push stick like I should have. It catches and it pulls back in and it pulls my hand right into the saw. Just, and you can hear, if you've ever worked around, around machinery, you could hear the difference in the sound when it catches flesh versus wood. And I, I just it went, it, the wood caught and it pulled my hand in and went, Poof, and I grabbed my hand and I watched blood just go squirt everywhere. And I grabbed it like this. Cause I was like, I was like, ah, crap. <laughs> and I could feel what was just like wet hamburger in my hands. I was like, oh, oh, that's not good. And I didn't know which finger it was. Cause like the adrenaline and all the blood, I was like, ah. So I walked over to my father-in-law and I was like, Hey, uh, Right. Is it bad? <laughs> I opened it and closed it real quick and I watched his face. It went like this. <laughs> and he didn't say it was bad or not. He just said, we need to go to the hospital. 
and I'd, sp <laughs> I'd split my finger straight down the middle. I had six fingers for a while. It's it really sweet. <clears throat> but I remember I didn't want to look at it. I, whatever it was inside of me, I was like, I don't, I don't really want to know what this looks like. Because if I see it, then I'm going to feel the pain. But as of right now, I can pretend like there's nothing wrong, right? I did not want to take a hard look. Now listen to me. God has called you to be a leader. He's put a burden on your heart. You might need to take a hard look, even if it's going to hurt. Parents, take a hard look. Husbands, wives, look at your relationship. Take a hard look. Be willing to do the hard thing. Well, I, I don't know what that's going to be. I don't know what that's going to look. I don't know how it's going to be. I, I don't. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we don't want to take a hard look, do we? We don't want to look. Because what that reveals, man, it may not be something that we're ready to deal with. I don't want to see what, what God's going to show me. I don't, I don't want to see what might be there. Now, some people are like, Pastor, I don't need to look. You're telling us, I don't need to take a hard look because I'm perfect. I am not sinning. I don't, I don't sin. This, this message is for somebody else. They, I, I got 10 or 12 people that need to take a hard look at their life. But not me. I don't need to take a hard look at my life because I'm not doing anything wrong. I love how First uh, John says it this way in verse 8. If we claim to have no sin... We're only fooling ourselves. Only ourselves. We are not fooling anybody else. There is nobody else that doesn't think you got issues. If you don't think you got issues, you're the only one that thinks that. He says, you're only fooling yourself and you're not actually living in truth. But if you'll confess all of those screw-ups, all those things to God, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse us from all of our wickedness. And then verse 10 goes on to say, if we claim that we haven't done it, then we're basically calling God a liar and we're showing that his word has no place in our hearts. I don't have it. There, there can't be anything with wrong with me, so there's no reason for me to look. And my marriage is perfect because it's one perfect person married to another perfect person. Anyways, I'm not trying to start fights. I'm just, I'm just saying, Pastor, I don't need to look at my kid's life because my kid is an angel and they have never done anything wrong. They are part me. And therefore, they, I know that they've never done anything. That's why we don't want to talk to the, to the teachers. Because there's no way that our offspring could ever be a problem in that class. Not us. Not ours. They're not like all those other kids. Those other kids, sure, but not our kids. Not us, right? We don't want that look. We don't want to know. It's very apparent sometimes when we stop and take a look, a hard look that things aren't the way they need to be. The Bible says in James, I believe it's James chapter 1. I put it in my notes. Yes, it is James chapter 1. James chapter 1 talks about the fact that the Bible is a mirror that you get to see yourself in. Now, if I got some zits going on and some cold sores or I'm just not having a good hair day, I don't want to look in the mirror because I don't want to be reminded of what is not going well right now. So often we avoid... The hard look we avoid God's word because it's very quick to expose in us an attitude or a habit that we don't want to don't want to deal with and that's the second part you take a hard look and after you do that you have to acknowledge what's broken he didn't get there and go well 
you know, there are some walls down, but they did build the temple. Let's focus on the temple. Let's just focus on the temple, right? That's kind of a thing that we like to do in society today. Let's just pretend that nothing's ever broken and that let's just look at what isn't broken. Let's just talk about what, all the good things. Now, there is an element of focusing on the positive. I absolutely agree to that. But when Satan has, what Satan has been very successful in is he's got Christians to bury their heads in the sand. And so we don't acknowledge anything that's broken. A lot of parents can't bring their kids into church because then they would have to acknowledge that their kids have a problem paying attention. Their kids have a problem with their authority. They don't respect them. They don't respect the house of God. They don't respect the man of God. They have no interest in God. Bringing your kids to church or sitting down with your kids and trying to have prayer at night before they go to bed would quickly expose the fact that your kid cares more about TikTok and a boyfriend or a girlfriend than they care about you or about God's will in their life. And I don't want to deal with that. I just don't want to acknowledge that maybe my kid isn't perfect or that my kid is going down the wrong path. I don't want to look at my workplace and see that my workplace, even if, especially if you're the leader or the boss or whatever, you don't want to sit there and acknowledge that maybe you've created a culture of greed and selfishness and backstabbing and, and bitterness inside a place where you're, where you're actually the one that, that is a huge culture setter. You don't want to admit that because you're like, oh, no, it's pretty. I mean, we're doing better than other branches. So let's just not, let's pretend like there's nothing there. Or you know what? Let me compare my relationship with my, with my person, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my husband, my wife. Let me compare it to yours or other people's so that I feel better about things that we should be working on but aren't. Because, well, <laughs> over there. Right? Right? I mean, I may be messed up, but I'm not as messed up as them. So we, we rarely take a hard look. Now, some of you just won't look. Some of you have taken a look, and then you're just living in outright denial. I had a, I had a, a family member that lived near a water treatment plant. And if you've never been around a water treatment plant, thank God. Because we walked outside, and whoo Oh, man. And I go, bro, what is that smell? He goes, what smell? Now, he'd been living there for a couple years. He's like, what smell? I don't smell anything. He had gone nose blind. It's a real thing. You smell something so long, you should stop smelling it. It's like that junior hire that's got B.O. and thinks that it's, it's fine. You're like, no, bro, you stink. My, I walked outside that house. I was like, what are you? you? I was like, bro, I can't move. I'm, I'm going to die. He's like, I don't smell anything. But you don't smell. It's like somebody grabbed like a like a a fresh roadkill, stuck it in a gym sock, then threw it in a pool of cottage cheese and set out in the sun for like three months in the middle of July. I was like, I don't know if I'm being descriptive enough for you or not. I was like, this is disgusting. He's like, I don't smell anything. I'm like, there's a chance that you have just gotten so used to it. And we'll talk about this here in a, in a second with, with Nehemiah when he talks to the rest of them. There, there's a chance that it's, 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 it's gotten pretty bad and you just, you just refuse to acknowledge it. You just don't want to acknowledge it. Proverbs 28, 13 says this, people who conceal their sins will not prosper. If they confess them and turn from them, they'll receive mercy. But people who conceal them, you can't prosper if you're just hiding it. If you're hiding it. The, uh, the part there that I made you say twice, if you look at verse 13, it says, I went and I inspected the broken walls. Because I, I went... Uh, you bring it up. I went through the gates, blah, blah, blah. 
and I went to inspect the broken walls. Now bring up verse 15. Verse 15 says this, I went to the Kitchen Valley instead, inspecting the wall. The two words there that are used are both Hebrew words that are used as a medical term more often than not. And they used a medical term here that literally means to examine or to probe a wound. That's a weird phrase. The same way a doctor would look into the wound. Same way your mom would like look at your scabbed knee and try to dig out the gravel. You say, don't touch that, it hurts. That's the idea here. To take a hard look and to acknowledge what's broken may be like having to probe a wound. And it hurts to think that maybe you're not the kind of brother or sister or mother or father or husband or wife or boyfriend or girlfriend or grandma or grandpa that you should be. It hurts to probe that wound and see, is this unhealthy and should you be doing a better job leading? Should you be having more conversations? Should you be evaluating what's there? Or do you want to continue to conceal and recognize that you will never prosper as long as that sin is, is, is being brushed under the rug, as long as that cancer is, is hiding under the surface of your life or your workplace or your school or where you name it. Now, if you want to know what to do with that, you could take a lesson from Job. Job says in chapter 6, verse 24, teach me, God, teach me, and I'll keep quiet. I'll just shut up. I'm sure God is waiting for a lot of us to say that. I'll just shut up and you show me what I've done wrong. Because I, I am willing to take a hard look. And I'm willing to acknowledge what's broken. I just need you to show me. Now, I want to caveat this before we move on. Some of you heard that and you're like, oh, love this message. I am so good at seeing what's broken. I am so good at finding all the things that aren't the way they're supposed to be and pointing them out to others. It is my spiritual gift to let people know how not right they are, and how I think they can improve. And some of you heard what I just said and thought, man, I'm so glad he's preaching this because I'm going to go home and I'm going to start taking a hard look at everybody else and I'm going to really acknowledge all the things in their life that aren't the way they're supposed to be. Some of you already do that without this message and you're not right, okay? That is not what I'm preaching on and that's not what I'm talking about. Nehemiah is doing it because he has a heart to see it made right. See, what a lot of people do, what a lot of us do, is we just point out the negative because we like to poke the wound and we like to see other people squirm and we like to draw attention to all the things other people have done wrong, but it has nothing to do with a heart to say, I want to be a part of the solution. All we're doing is we just want to be a part of calling out the problem. That is not the same thing. Now, what I see him do after all that, and the reason I see him do those, three, those two steps to take a hard look and acknowledge what's broken is because he's trying to do the most important part of that leading himself, which is counting the cost. If you want to do a great work, you're going to have to count the cost. He was going through all that it was going to take to see these walls get built. He was counting the cost. He was looking at the time it would take, the money it would take, the effort it would take, the leadership it would require. I don't have time to go into all of this, what it looks like to count the cost, but I'll put it in uh, this week's second helping and you can go on YouTube and you can find a second helping on what it looks like to count the cost. Because sometimes as much as you try, you can't really know what's coming next. And you hear me say, count the cost and you're like, does that mean I have to have all the answers? No. But what it does mean is that you don't just flippantly go into something and be like, all right, God, <laughs> this is called faith. I'm just going to trust you. No, no, no. See, that's a cop-out. And I have some friends that their spiritual life is zero work 
and all faith. I know, I know a couple pastors will get up and be like, well, we're just going to see where the Spirit leads. I'm like, bro, you didn't study. Don't get up and preach where the Spirit leads. You get up and prepare a word because God is not the author of confusion. He's also not a God that likes things done decently and in order. And so you do what you can because God has gifted you to be able to do what you can. And then God will do what only God can do. See, what Satan did is he showed up and he tempted Jesus with this. He said, hey, um, if, uh, if you really are the son of God, God said that he'll protect you. So he brings him up to this high tower and says, jump off because God will protect you, right? Last week, I preached on the fact that God promised us safety in his words. He promised he'd protect us. Satan goes, if you're really the son of God, and if God really loves you, then prove it, jump off. And if you read that, you're like, yeah, so it is. I mean, I believe in God, then I would do it. I would jump off just to, just to tell Satan off. But see, Jesus realized what Satan was doing. He says, hey, you, you don't tempt God. You don't get to tempt God. Doing stupid things to prove that God loves me enough to rescue me is not a way to show that I love God. I don't willingly put myself in dumb situations and then ask God to bail me out as some kind of test on whether God loves me or not. God loved me enough to give me a brain to tell me not to do dumb stuff. And yet I'm like, oh, okay, I'm going to make God do all the work. That's not how that works. This is what Jesus was talking about when he, he said to his disciples in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, he says, if you, don't carry, if you don't carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But... Before you begin to carry your cross, if you're going to step into being a disciple with mine, but before you begin, don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin, he gives an illustration, he goes, who would begin building a, a tower, or in this case he says, a, a, begins construction out of a building without first calculating the cost to see if he has enough money to finish it? Otherwise, you might complete the foundation before you run out of money, and then everyone would laugh at you. What God is saying, he's saying, I don't need people following me who promise that they're going to be there and then quit halfway through. Our church had a bunch of people step up and promise, hey, I'll serve in children's, I'll be out in the parking, I'm going to do that, I'm going to step up and I'm going to give. And if half of the people kept their promise to give and to serve and to attend, our church would have already planted more churches by now. If just the Christians who in the five years that we've existed actually gave like they were supposed to give and served like they were supposed to serve, we would already have accomplished more of our mission. But it's, a, it's, an, it's, a, it's an epidemic inside the Christian circle that we don't count the cost and go, I want to follow Jesus, but the cost might be that it, it takes away a little bit of my, of my me time. It might, it might require some of my time or my talent or my treasure or my testimony. And you know, I say I love God, but I didn't really count the cost on loving God. So if it goes much beyond a, a church service every once in a while, that's too much for me. And God's saying, hey, if you're really one of my followers, if you're really one of my disciples, you take up your cross. And a cross means self-sacrifice. And what, he's, what Nehemiah's having to do is he's having to sit there and go, this wall ain't going to build itself. What's it going to take to get this thing done? <coughs> and once again, you might be sitting there hearing that and going, so, Pastor, in order to do anything for God, I have to know all the answers and know how to do it. That, that's just not me. I don't have all the answers. Do you understand that Nehemiah didn't either? I'm not saying Nehemiah knew everything. I'm saying he did what he could do. Nehemiah was not an architect. He was not an engineer. He had never built a wall before. The extent of his training was to drink a cup of wine. 
Like he ate the food before the king ate it and he drank the, the wine before the king drank it. That was, his, that was his job. That's all of his training. So when you're talking about, do, do, I, do I know what it's going to take to see my burden come to No, you don't know. You don't have to know all that. And Satan wants you to get discouraged and to stop doing what God's called you to do because you sit there and go, well, I, don't, I just don't have all the answers. I don't, I don't know what's coming tomorrow. I don't, I don't know how to do that. I don't, know what's, I don't know what to make. I don't have the solution for that problem. I don't know the answer to that question. God, God wants to be involved in your life, not because you've got it all figured out, not because you're amazing, not because you're this expert bridge builder or engineer. He doesn't need you to have all the answers. He wants your surrender more than he wants your solution. You being willing to say, God, use me, is what God is looking for. Not God, I know how all this is going to turn out tomorrow. I know what's going to happen with this. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says it this way. If I trust the Lord with all my heart, and I lean not on my own understanding. If in everything I do, I acknowledge him, he'll direct my path. If I'll just surrender to him, he'll give me the answers. He'll give me the next step. But as long as I'm putting me first, I'm not surrendering to him. Now, I promised you this week that not only would I tell you what to do with your burden as far as for you, but that I'd also tell you how to, how to deal with other people with it. But in order to lead others, first you have to lead yourself. So he leads himself. But then, so we left off in verse 16. The last two verses we're going to read this weekend is how you lead others. Verse 17 says this. Now I said to them, so verse 16 said, I hadn't told any of the religious leaders, I hadn't told any of the priests or any of the, the town officials, any of the administrators my plan. I just go out and survey. That's the end of verse 16. Verse 17 says, but now I said to them, you know very well what, tr what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. I love this. And if you will give me just a, a couple minutes really quick, I'm going to share with you what God showed me. And it is one of the best lessons on how to lead others, how to take your burden whatever it is that God has made you aware of that's broken and how to lean into it. And it may, like I said, it may be a relationship with somebody that you're sitting next to right now. It may be a family, it may be a, it may be a bigger issue in the community. It may be something at work. But if you look what Nehemiah did, you've got a blueprint right there in that verse for how you, how you can move forward in your life. And, and if you're in here and you're, you're identified as a leader, I believe you're all leaders. You're all called to lead. But if you're an actual like boss, supervisor, uh, you're in charge of people, you're a coach, you're in the military, you, 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 have, you have some kind of manager role at work, I don't know. If you have people direct reporting to you, this is phenomenal stuff right here. See, what he does, <clears throat> the very first thing he says is he goes, hey, you guys know very well what trouble we are in. You, you, you see the problem, right, guys? He's speaking to that idea that we go nose blind. See, these people had been in Jerusalem, some of them for 70 years. They've been there and they, they tried to rebuild the wall 20 or 30 years ago and they got stopped. So they, there's some of them, they've just gotten used to, this is what we do. We live in a city with broken down walls. 
We just, this is where we live. This is the crap hole I live in. This is, this is the way my backyard is. You ever watch that show Hoarders on TV? They walk in and you can't see the floor. And people have stacked up piles upon piles upon piles of trash. And they're like, hey, this isn't healthy. This isn't good. And people are like, what? What? And they're like, you know you don't have to live like this, right? And they're like, what? I should be able to sleep on an actual bed, not just a pile of garbage? They haven't, they just, they forgot. And so what I see him do is I see him, first and foremost, he points out the problem. And this is what you need to do. Point out the problem. Acknowledge that this, that this is not how good, as good as it should be. This is not what's right. Some of you parents, you need to sit down with your kids and you need to say, hey, this is not good. This thing that's happening in your life, this is not healthy. You need to sit down with that person you love, that family member, that spouse, that whoever, and you say, this, this can't be God's best. Repeat after me, everybody. Things aren't right. See how easy that was? Hey, listen, hey, things aren't right. This isn't God's best. Now you've already started. He, he, say, he says, hey, guys, you do know that Jerusalem lies in ruins and the gates have been destroyed by fire. You're aware of that, right? He, he's just pointing out the obvious. Now, once again, he's not doing it to be a jerk and he's not doing it in this way to be a Debbie Downer. Like, hey, let me rally you guys around. Everything sucks. <laughs> wah, wah. Like, thank you. Thank you for that. So glad I got out of bed to come to this meeting, Nehemiah. That's not what he's doing, but he is, he is, because most of the people know, they're actively aware, yeah, this isn't the best. This isn't what God intended. But there are people in your life, they've gotten so used to their brokenness that they forgot that things could be better. Do you know that God might have put you in, in their life? Or you, you might be the only one right now that sees that your relationship has room to improve. And so as a leader, you might have to be the one that has the hard conversation that says, hey, this is not as good as God intended it to be. And when you can have that conversation, then you can move on quickly because the emphasis is not the negative. He moves on in the same sentence. He goes, so let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. So once you point out the problem, then you get to go on and submit the solution. See, I need to make sure that you know what the problem, that there's a problem in case you've been blind to it, you've gone nose blind to it. But I also want you to know there's a solution to it. See, if I sit down with my kid and I say, hey, son, things aren't right. I also want to be able to say, hey, things can be better. Say that with me. Things can be better. It's not that hard. You can sit down with an employee and go, hey, <clears throat> The way that things have been going at work, the things that the way it's been in your department lately, that's not that's not as good as it should be. Things aren't right, but hey, what I want to talk to you about is how things can be better. See, that's what a real leader does. Says, hey, there is room to improve. There is there is better than this. And when we take our faith into account, what you do is you, if you're talking to somebody you love. And Kaylee and I have had to have a few conversations like this as husband and wife. God has better for us than what we've been living in lately. The way we've been treating each other. The things we've said to each other. The frustrations that we've been walking around with. God has better for us than this. 
And see, when we can have that conversation now, I've taken the hard look and I've acknowledged what's broken and I'm ready to go, okay, hey, let's, let's get to work fixing this. Now, those of you that are taking notes, you will also notice a couple of things that he doesn't do. See, when, you, when you're there and you point out the problem and then you submit the solution, you also have to be, be careful that you intentionally forget the fault. Because see, what you and I want to do is we want to get there as Nehemiah and be like, let's talk about the fact that you ain't built a wall in 50 years. Oh, nobody else in here? Okay. Uh, are we going to have a talk? We're going to talk about how things are around the house? Well, let's talk about all the chores that you haven't done. Yeah, like, okay, once again, I feel like I'm the only bad person in this church. Like what we, what I tend to do, because all you all apparently living in denial right now, what I tend to do is I try to, when I get into one of those, I'm like, let's talk about all the things that I am not guilty of. So if I'm Nehemiah, I'm going to go, you know, guys, let's talk about those stupid Babylonians that came in and burnt down our city. Don't you guys hate Babylonians? Babylonians are jerks. Blah, 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 blah. How bad did we have it? How, how, how many times do we just rehash all the negative from the year back? Oh, COVID. If COVID didn't exist, and if all oh, the pandemic, let's just crap on all the things and bring all the things that we don't like. You know what that solves? But we sure do like to do it, don't we? Let's blame everything that's, oh, do you know the childhood that I have? The reason I act like this is because this happened to me. And the reason, and we have all of these things that we want to blame and all of the people that did us wrong and all the bad stuff. Well, all we're doing is dealing out fault. Now, you need, to, you need to understand this. When you begin to hand out blame, you automatically move away from the solution. When you come in, you're like, okay, now let me assign blame for all of these things. You are now taking a step away from the solution. You have to make sure that you're not showing up to these going, you didn't build a wall and you've had all of this time and you have been here and you haven't done anything and I can't believe it and don't you understand and blah, 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 blah. Because you're not working towards a solution. You're just belittling them. Now, Nehemiah has been all, there all of three days. Have you ever had somebody who's been, all, been, been around for all of what feels like three minutes and then they want to tell you all the things that you've done wrong. You're like, step back. <laughs> you don't know the half of it. <laughs> but what he's doing is even though they should have been building the wall, he is rallying his troops. So as much as my kid has done a lot of dumb things, this conversation is not the time to point that out. There may be a time coming where you and that employee or you and that family member need to talk about what they did, the blame they have. But at this point, you're going, hey, I want to move towards working on the burden, on the solution that God has for us. So I'm not finding fault. I'm forgetting the fault. Romans 2.1 says it this way, in case you needed some encouragement that way. Therefore, you have no excuse. Oh, man, every one of you who judges. <coughs> Excuse me. You have no excuse. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. You want to go rip into a coworker about all the things they do wrong? You may not see it, but you do a lot of things wrong as a coworker too. Mm -hmm, I didn't hear a lot of people writing that down. <laughs> and sure, you failed to meet 
or they failed to meet your needs, your loved one, family member, romantic partner. You've probably done the same thing to them. Almost everything that you can get mad at somebody else for doing, you can just pretty much guarantee you've done it too. You just don't see it. Probably because you're not taking a look in the mirror. So forget the fault. But I love what he does do. Look back at the verse. He says, you know very well. He says, you know very well. Um, can you go back to, I'm sorry, to verse 17 in Nehemiah chapter 2. He says, uh, now I said to them, you know very well what trouble, what's that word? What trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So let, huh, is that intentional vocabulary or what? See, a real leader, a real leader is always going to talk about the team. That's what a leader does, a real leader. See, it's, it's about the we, not me. He didn't show up and go, guys, uh, I'm the one with the letters. <laughs> I'm the one with the big brain and the ideas. I'm the one with all of the timber. I'm going to be the one that fixes all of this. That's half of us in this room. It's all about me. It's also not the other way around. You messed up, so you need to get to work fixing your problem. You do it, and I'll watch. That's the other half in this room. See, that's not what he does there. It's about unity, not you. It's the we, not me mentality. He says, hey, we can do this. There's, there's a part of this that you need to understand because this is what's going to make the difference in some of your relationships falling apart at this moment or moving forward into victory. You sit down with your kid and you put your arm around him and you've said, hey, this isn't the way it should be. And it could be better. And then you say, we can do this together. I want you guys to repeat after me. We can do this together. Try having that conversation with the person you love. It can be with your mom or dad or student or coworker. Hey, we, we can do this together. Like, I, I'm not saying you fix it or watch how great I am and watch me fix it. I'm saying we together are going to do it. As the leader, he said, I'm going to get down in the trenches and work alongside you to make sure this wall gets built. I think God has done that same thing inside the church. He said that he's made each one of us inside the church to be a unique body part. It's like a toe or a finger, or a kneecap, or a rib, or whatever. And he says that the church body is a bunch of individual parts that make up one whole body, just like your body is, your physical body is. And he says in Ephesians 4.16, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow, so that the whole body is healthy, and growing, and full of love. It's when all of us work together, so if there's a burden that God has put on this church, it's going to require the team. If your thought is, I'm going to go bring my friends so Pastor Josh can, can tell them about Jesus. No, no, you and I are going to tell them about Jesus. 
you're going to embody Jesus at work or at home when they see you a lot more than they see me. I'm happy to love on your friends and be a pastor to them, but God has put you in their life as their family member or friend so that they can see Jesus a lot more than just on one church service a week. Okay. Let's see how the rest of the series is going to go. All right. Let me also show you something else. I love what he did here. If you go back to verse 17, he says, hey, listen, the gates have been destroyed by, the, the, the walls are burned down, the gates have been destroyed by fire. He says, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. See, the, the real problem was not that they didn't have walls. The walls were, were an issue because what that meant is that they really didn't have any protection. They didn't have any peace. They didn't have any joy in their lives. They were filled with stress and anxiety. That The walls represented that God's best wasn't there for them, that they had to live in disgrace and shame. So what he says is, hey, let's end this disgrace. And when you begin to lead others, what you need to do is you need to emphasize the end, not the effort. See, bosses, especially bosses, what we do is we, we, have a, we have a tendency to focus on all the work that needs to get done. You see, this got to get done, this got to get done, this got to get done, this got to get done. We focus on the work when what we're supposed to do is focus on the win. Here's the win. Here's what it looks like when the disgrace is lifted. Don't, see, you know what was coming next? And all the stuff that's coming next, it's a whole lot of hard work. The story of Nehemiah is not about bricks and mortar. But there's about to be a lot of bricks and mortar. The actual story, though, is about the disgrace being lifted off and God's best coming in. And if you're the leader and all you can do is focus on all the work that has to be done, then you're missing out on casting a vision about the wind. I got to talk about the end. The end is what matters. Not all the effort it's going to take to get there. I heard a pastor say it this way, and I think he was quoting from a book, but I don't know what book it was. But he said, if you want, and I love, I love this analogy. He said, if you're excited because God has called you to build a boat and go out and, and, and bring the gospel out there. He goes, as a pastor, you, you get all excited. He's like, yeah, yeah. I got, I got a church full of people. And I really, I know that if we just build this boat, God's going to do these amazing things. So I've got all these plans and I figured out how many, how many oars we need, how many seats and where the boards go. And if, if they'll just nail the boards like this. And so I go around showing all my church people, here's the blueprint. And this is what we need to do. And if, if we start this ministry, and if we go here, and if you'll take on this, and if you'll go out and if we can make the coffee right, and if we can start another thing, and the band sounds like this, and you've got this big blueprint. And he goes, and then you're surprised that the whole church is just like, okay. He goes, if you want people to build a boat, you don't show them the blueprint, you show them the ocean. And when you get excited, and this works as a boss, this works as a parent, when you show people the potential that God has for a win, they'll enthusiastically build a boat. But if all they ever see is the work, and they don't ever see the end, they begin to resent the very thing that, that could be a blessing. See, if Nehemiah focused on, you need to lay 200 bricks a day and you need to lay 200 bricks, they're just going to focus on the work. But he goes, listen, whatever it takes, 
in the days that come, all the bricks that we got to put out there, in the end, our disgrace is going to be lifted. We're going to be at a place of joy and peace and comfort, something we haven't felt in a long time. Honey, I love you. And if you and I, we got a lot of work to do. There's some things we need to change. There's some habits we got to adjust. There's some stuff we got to lay down. There's a lot of brick and mortar work that's got to take place. But you know what? Let's talk about what it looks like when we have a healthy relationship. Let's talk about when, when this addiction isn't controlling your life. Hey, let's talk about when, when the workplace is actually fun to come to. Let's talk about when our home is a, is a joy place, a joy-filled place for you to be at. When, you, when we enjoy being around each other, when we want to have conversations. Let's look at, the, at what, what's coming. If we'll do the hard work, yes, but look what it could be. And you begin to talk about the end. He ends that conversation with verse 18. So I broke down verse 17 for you. Verse 18, he says this. Then I told them all about the gracious hand of God that had been on me and how my conversa- about my conversation with King Artaxerxes and how he gave me all the letters. And when I did all of that, they replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. See, we all have a good work that we need to do. God wants to do a good work in your life and in your relationships. He's got a good work at your school. He's got a good work he wants to do at your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family. He may may have put you there to be the catalyst for it. That wall set broken for 150 years. It took one person getting up and going, hey, it's not, what it could, it's not what it should be, and it's not what it could be. Here's what God's got for us. If we'll work together, it, it'll get there. If, if you'll just hear that we have a God who's got his hand on me, a God who burdened me 800 miles away to take the trip here. The same God that worked in a pagan Persian king who doesn't have any reason to support us. And yet he's given us full permission and all the wood that we need. We, that same God has got something better for us if we'll just work together. He cast that vision to a group of people that he had never met. And God took the burden that was on Nehemiah's heart. And he worked through a crowd of people and what had been broken for 150 years, they rebuilt back up in 52 days. The good work that God wants to do in your life and in your home and in your your relationships and your circle of influence or in your backyard or in New England is possible. Just because nobody else has been able to do it doesn't mean that, that God doesn't want to start right now. God wants to use you. He wants to use me. He wants to use our church. He wants to use anybody who will have a burden and then move forward and say, God, use me. And when we we allow him to do that, we get these stories like Nehemiah. And he tells all those people that. He says, listen, God's with me and God worked in the king. And what he did is he highlighted the hope. And this is what's different from all the secular, like everything I gave you so far, you could use in a secular environment and it would work. And like I said, a lot of, businessmen and women use it and they don't have a relationship with God but see I think the 
the fuel is that last part of Nehemiah. He says God's been in it. So let's do it. And he highlights the hope. He highlights the hope. We can hope for this, not because you and I are wicked smart, because there's something bigger at play than us. See, that's what the secular world doesn't have. See, we can, we can do as much as we can in our brain, but that's it. And so what you and I have as believers is we have a supernatural bump. A God whose hand is with us. A God whose hand can move a king's heart. And can also turn a bunch of slaves into wall builders. The Bible says in Romans 12, rejoice in our confident hope. As a pastor, that's my job is to highlight the hope. But it's the same job that you have. Tomorrow at work, go highlight the hope. Be confident in the hope. And if you don't have that hope, man, I pray that you find it. I pray that more than anything else and any burden and anything you can accomplish, you find the hope right now that exists only in Jesus Christ and you invite that into your life. And if you'll have that hope, then everything we've been talking about, every burden, no matter how big it is, is possible through the blood of Jesus Christ. And next week, next week we'll talk about what it looks like when a bunch of people who don't know what they're doing get together to do something pretty awesome. It is, it's going to be a fun week next week. I got a huge surprise for you, but you got to come to find out what it is. Let's pray and ask God to bless us, and then we'll get you out of here. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord God, we come before you. Lord, we thank you for the story of Nehemiah, and we thank you for all that you've done for us. Uh, God, we thank you all that you've done for Nehemiah. We thank you that you've called us to lead ourselves and to do better jobs of taking inventory of what might need to get fixed. But God, that you didn't leave us there, that you also have a way for us to see that happen, to see things get better. So God, we lay it at your feet, whatever it is that you have for us to do, whatever you'd have for us to change. Help us, Lord God, know what's best. Know what to do different. Lord, we need your help. We need your direction. God, there's somebody listening right now that needs you as a savior. They don't have hope. They don't know what tomorrow holds because they've never given you control of their life. God, I pray for that man or that woman, that boy or that girl that's under the sound of my voice right now that needs Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I pray that they would invite him in, that they would accept that they're not good enough to, to fix their issues, but that you forgive them of their sins. And God, I pray that they would find hope in you, that they would let you sit in the driver's seat. And Lord, I pray for every single person who claims to be a follower of yours, that we would get burdened for what breaks your heart, and then we get to work on making it better. We would get to work, Lord God, seeing the things that are broken down be built back up. God, I pray that our families will begin to, to glorify you, that our relationships will glorify you, that our, our workplaces and our neighborhoods will glorify you because there's people who follow you that are acting and living like Jesus and, and shining a light in the darkness that's around them. God, I'm excited to see how you can use us and our church to change the environment to be one that brings you honor and glory.
Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we claim all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'd like to support the ministries of Harbor as we bring the hope of Jesus to our community and around the world, you can visit harborchurch.com give or text any amount to 84321. Thanks for listening. See you next week.